So we are, as Paul said, in the second week of a three-week series on our core value of mission. See, as those who follow Jesus, mission isn't something that we just sort of add on to our life. It's not something that, that we're trying to tack on. It, it really defines who we are. We are missionaries. Our, our entire ordinary, mundane lives are defined by this identity. See, before we were in Christ, before uh, we had been set free, when we were still living in our sin and we were dead spiritually, our mission was to pursue our own success and our own status. Our mission was to construct identities of our own making, to, to build kingdoms with our own hands. And, and we were given over to selfishness and self-worship and pride. But God, being rich in mercy, saved us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And now being set free, now being rescued and redeemed, oh, we're missionaries. We, we joyfully die to ourselves and join God on his great mission of rescue and reconciliation. And so last week we talked about the priority of prayer in mission, <clears throat> excuse me, and how any mission needs to start first by going to God and crying out to him. This week, we are going to reflect on what it means to live as missionaries who engage our world and who engage our culture. Now, when we start talking about cultural engagement as Christians, we can run into some challenges because not all Christians have thought about this the same. And really, largely, there's three categories that the Christians have typically thought through when it comes to engaging culture. Some take a more defensive posture. This means that we sort of have to box out the encroaching liberalism and secularism that is crashing into our world. And so a defensive posture has this mindset that, man, our culture is becoming less Christian. And so we have to defend our culture against that. And so whether that's boxing out stuff coming in or trying to sort of take back the culture for Jesus, it's more of a defensive posture. Others, and somewhat responding to that posture, take more of a relevance posture. If Christianity is going to survive, it must remain relevant, which means letting go of some of our old language and our old categories and our old practices. We need to sort of build the church and build our faith around what is more relevant to our culture today. And so instead of being defensive, the church must seek to understand and have conversation and find places of agreement and unity. Others say, we're not going to do either one. We're just withdrawing. Culture's too broken, too sinful. And so we're not going to defend against something and try to win something back. And we're not going to think about what it means to be relevant in order to stay on the scene. We're just withdrawing. We're going to kind of camp out in our corner and sort of wait it out until Jesus returns. So those are the three categories that, that Christians largely have thought in. Now, people have taken mixed views and they've, they've sort of combined them in different ways. And look, we all have tendencies. Even if you didn't have these three categories in your mind, you have a particular tendency in how you live. My point this morning isn't to dissect each of these approaches. Rather, I want to give us three entirely different categories. I want to give us an entirely different starting place when we think about engaging culture and being on mission. I want us to be shaped by something different than these three categories. And so from 1 Corinthians 9, here's, here's the categories that I want to talk about this morning. Presence, proximity, 
and proclamation. These are the categories that I want us to be formed by and shaped by. And as I said last week in this series, I'm not really saying anything new. If you've been around First City for any extended amount of time, what I'm going to say this morning, you've heard before. So this is more of a refresh and a, and a challenge and, a, and sort of say, hey, church, this is who we are. Let's be reminded of who we are. Let's lift our eyes, lift our gaze to who Christ has called us to be. And in doing that, our, my hope is God will build, build all of our faith for sharing the gospel and making disciples. And he will deepen our hope in his power to save. And he will strengthen our obedience to go and actually live this out and make disciples. And for those of you that are here this morning that don't profess faith, my heart for you is that you would hear our heart for you. My, my desire is you would hear how we want to love you and how we want to be present with you in the world. But more than that, I want you to hear how Jesus has come to save sinners like you and me and that you would put your faith in him this morning. So let's turn our attention to these categories. First, talking about presence. So if you've been in the church and you've, if you've heard sermons on cultural engagement, you've probably heard one from Acts 17, where Paul goes to Athens, he goes on Mars Hill, and he engages the Athenian philosophers of his day. And oftentimes, this is how we can think of cultural engagement. I'm going to the smartest people in culture, I'm engaging at the level of ideas, and I'm debating. And so we see this take place on the level within the media and on the news and in books and on college campuses and, and, and even the ways that we can debate and engage other people. And so really it's at this high level cultural influence. And that is good to some degree. Like, look, some of you are going to be called into that world and engage the culture in that way. But there's a problem if we think that is what cultural engagement means. Because as we see in Scripture... The ground zero, sort of the nuts and bolts of cultural engagement is not that high level. Even that high level starts somewhere else. It starts much more on the ground. And so cultural engagement is less mediated through ideas and more through presence. And so we have to be careful not to reduce cultural engagement to encounters with the philosophical elite and debate, and get into sort of the high-level discussions. It's less lecture halls, and media, and news, and music, and movies, and it is more your neighborhood, your backyard, your gym, your grocery store, the park, your job. That's where the nuts and bolts of cultural engagement takes place, and this is how Paul lived his life. Paul certainly had a teaching ministry. Paul certainly engaged the intellectual and philosophical elites, but when Paul talks about his cultural engagement himself, what do we see in 1 Corinthians 9? What is he talking about? He's talking about something different. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. He's talking about living with people, sharing his life, sharing language, sharing customs, rhythms, and routines. He's reaching people right where they lived. He's living life with them. He didn't just drop in, have a debate, peace out, and leave. No, he spent time with them. He was present with them. And more than that, he identified with them. To the Jew, I became a Jew. To the one outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Presence and identification are at the heart of what it means to live on mission. 
This is what missionary Catherine Morgan says. Mission has always meant, at least in the Christian connotations, not only to convert someone to true faith, but also the spiritual disposition of the missionary. His active charity and his self-giving to the object of his missionary task. From St. Paul to St. Nicholas of Japan, there has been no mission without self-identification of the missionary with those to whom God has sent him. Presence and identification. And really, this is what keeps us from just being those people who like to lob bombs at culture, who just like to sort of take pot shots and take critiques from a safe distance. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt so uncomfortable and so uh, out of place so one time, Mindy and I went to a, a going away party for one of my friends. He was going to go to grad school down in Atlanta. And my friend, he loves culture. And so he threw this bourbon and bow ties party. And so it was going to be like, we're going to all dress up with bow ties and seersucker suits. I mean, you people from the South have a very distinct style. And he wanted everybody there dressed like that. And Mindy and I, growing up in the Midwest, we didn't have anything like that. So we thought, okay, we'll just wear what we have. So I had like a uh, polo shirt and khakis on, and we show up and instantaneously we're like, we do not belong here. And just this fear, just like, I, we, we just do not belong here. Everybody is just wearing like these really cool southern get-ups, and I just look like some dude in a polo. And so we just sort of slowly started to slink away. Okay, we're not going to be here. And so we, we sort of snuck out and left. And see, this is what happens when we don't identify with people. We withdraw we, we sort of put a distance between ourselves and others. And so when we have to speak truth, when we have to present the gospel, if, we're, if there's distance, what ends up happening is this. We can be callous and harsh. We can lose love and empathy. And, and even our critique and our engagement can lack redemptive purpose because we feel so distant from people. And so we're called to be present and identify with people. This is what God's word calls us to as our engagement with the world. And why was Paul so passionate about this? Why was Paul so fired up that this was the way he was going to do mission and, and engage people? Because this is how Jesus did it. This is what 1 John 1 tells us. That which was from the beginning, Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen, with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. Jesus didn't keep a distance from us. Jesus didn't stay safe in his heavenly glory. No, he took on flesh. He was seen. He was heard. He was touched. God became a man. He took on DNA. He had a height and a weight and hair color and eye color. He had a voice. He had a culture. He had a language. He had customs and rhythms and routines. God in our neighborhood, God at parties, God at dinner table, God walking along the road. This is what Jesus did. He entered into the life of his people. Presence in proximity. This is how close God came to us, and this is how we are called to engage our world. So for us, we could say, to the Bellevueans, I became a Bellevuean. <laughs> to the Papillionites, I became a Papillionite. To the Platsmithians, I became a Platsmithian. Amen? Presence and identification. And my guess is, is that for most of you, you are living some degree this way. 
Like you're engaging the rhythms and routines of those you live among. So the tweak isn't necessarily to convince you to identify with people. It's more to see, hey, cultural engagement isn't something you step out of your normal life to do. Cultural engagement is right there where you're living normal life. In the mundane, in the average, in the ordinary. That's ground zero for mission. That's ground zero for engagement. This is how Tim Chester and Steve Timmis put it in their book, Total Church. Most gospel ministry involves ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. Whether it is helping a friend, working at the office, or going to the movies, there is a commitment to build relationships, modeling the Christian faith, and talking about the gospel as a natural part of conversation. Western culture has become very compartmentalized. We divide our lives into work time, leisure time, family time, church time, and mission time. We want to spend time in evangelism, but but because this can happen only at the expense of something else, it never happens. Rethinking evangelism as relationships rather than events, radically changes this. Evangelism is not an activity to be squeezed into a busy schedule. It becomes an intention that we carry throughout the day. The same is true of church. If church and mission are redefined in relational terms, then work, leisure, and family time can all be viewed as gospel activities. Ordinary life becomes missional if we have gospel intentionality. Ordinary life with gospel intentionality, presence and identification, this is where our engagement starts. But it is not just presence. Closely connected to presence is proximity. Like it's not enough just to identify and be with people. We can't treat people like benches with wet paint on them where we sort of keep a healthy distance from them. No, we are up close and personal. To be proximate means I'm going to allow your mess and your sin and your drama and your baggage to enter into my world. I'm not only present, but I'm available and I'm open and I genuinely care. And this is how Jesus did it for us as well. Jesus entered into our world and he spent time with lots of different people. He hung out with the rich and the poor. He hung out with the religious leaders. He hung out with the tax collectors and the political uh, terrorists. He hung out with prostitutes. He hung out with sinners. He hung out with everybody. And for everybody, with all of their baggage, all of their sin, all of their pain, he let all of that touch him. Sometimes literally. He invited that all into his world. He let the mess and the sin and the pain of people spill into his life, spill into his calendar. He allowed it to inconvenience him. Jesus lived proximate to us. And for Paul, this translated into becoming weak in order to win the weak. Like how many of us are willing to give up rights, willing to give up pleasure, willing to give up comfort, willing to give up things that we, we could normally hold on to in order to become weak, in order to be inconvenienced, in order to let the mess of sin crash into our life so that we can love people. Jesus was proximate The Apostle Paul, who wanted to follow Jesus on mission, lived close with people. This is how God engages us, and this is how he calls us to engage others. So what does proximity look like for us as a church? Well, two categories for us. First is hospitality. And we talk about hospitality all the time at First City. This is our number one evangelism strategy. 
Hospitality. Like the New Testament puts a large emphasis on hospitality and openness and welcome to all people, but especially those who are the stranger, the alien, those who are different than us. And why does it put such emphasis on the stranger and the alien? Because that shows the welcoming heart of God to welcome you and I who were sinful and who were far off. God welcomes us and we are called to welcome others. And as you guys have heard, and you know, hospitality isn't just being nice to people. Hospitality is opening your life, opening your home and inviting people in, inviting in all of the baggage that they bring, all of the mess and complexity that they bring and inviting them into yours as well because we have it too. And it's not just inviting people who are like us, same age or same ethnicity or same stage of life. It's inviting all kinds, all types, differences into our home, into our lives. We want to be proximate with our hospitality, love people up close. And so church, let me once again encourage you, open your home, open your lives, use your dinner table, You've heard this rant before, whether you have some table from Walmart on discounts, whether you have a beautiful piece of restoration hardware, whether Jake White made you a custom table, or whether you have a piece of plywood with two boxes propping it up, use your dinner table, invite people in, serve them, love them, show hospitality. Let us be in each other's lives. Let's invite people in close. And when we do this, We don't do this just as individuals or individual families. We do this as a community. I remember the job that I had before I got into ministry. I was working in education policy. And I had a particular coworker that um, just got into numerous conversations with about my faith. And it was fascinating because she had grown up kind of in the church, but I mean, she was super liberal in a lot of ways. And so our conversations were a lot of fun. But I remember her one time telling me, she goes, you're my favorite Christian. And the way she said that was like, you're different than all the other Christians I know. And in my mind, I'm like, no, I'm not. I am not anything special. And I want to introduce you to an entire group of people who think similar to me and are in my life and helping me grow. And here's the thing. I I bet for those of you that have good friends who don't believe in Christ and don't follow Christ, you're probably the exception. You're probably that one Christian that they know who's different than all the other Christians that they know. You're the outlier. They need to know you're not an outlier. They need to be brought into community to see that there are people who love just like you love and think similar to you and and, and want to proclaim the gospel and want to serve. We can't be seen as unique sort of Lone Ranger Christians. We need to invite people in to community. Again, this is how Timmis and Chester put it. We need to be communities of love. And we need to be seen to be communities of love. People need to encounter the church as a network of relationships rather than a meeting you attend or a place you enter. Mission must involve not only contact between Christians and non-Christians, but between non-Christians in the Christian community. Look, this is why we want our gospel communities to be open to those who follow Christ and those who do not. Because we want, those of you who do not know Jesus, we want to see, want you to see that we're not special. We need Jesus. We're a mess. We're sinners. We need to repent. We need to seek forgiveness. 
We fight with one another. We, we, we don't always get along. We don't always do it right. But non-Christians need to see us depending upon Christ. They need to see us asking for forgiveness and repenting and walking out our need for Jesus. Why would we ever give them the impression that we don't need Jesus? Why would we want to ever hide our sin? Why would we ever want to say, you know what, I got my stuff together. No, we want people to see what Christian community looks like, and so we invite them in to community. It's the same thing on Sundays, what we're doing here. We we want this to be open and hospitable because we want those who are far from Christ to see Christian community. They, They want to see, we want them to see that, hey, we love each other, we serve one another, and we make a big deal about Jesus. And we're not just nice to each other, that from here we're wanting to invite people further into our lives. And so we extend hospitality. The next category is compassion. Along with hospitality, proximity means having a Holy Spirit-fueled compassion. We talked about this last week. We want prayer to shape our compassion. We want to have hearts of compassion. And here's what this means. It means that engaging culture with compassion will lead us to see people not just as sinners, but as those who have been sinned against. Yes, we're sinful. Yes, we're broken. Yes, we're rebellious. Yes, we need to be saved. Yes, we need to be redeemed. And yes, a lot of our problems in life are problems of our own making. But we are also those who have been sinned against. We are also those who have been damaged and wounded by the sin of others. Neglect, abandonment, abuse. We've been lied about. We've been gossiped about. We've been scammed. We've been ripped off. We've been hurt in some deep and profound ways. And that affects us. And so for us as a church, we need to be able to see past just a person's sin and see how they have been hurt and wounded and have compassion This is God's heart to us. God doesn't just go, hey, look, you filthy sinners. You're getting everything that you deserve. I'm out. No, he loves us. He has mercy and compassion, even in the midst of our self-made, self-inflicted sin and the way that we have been hurt by other people. Harvey Kahn, who was a missiologist from a previous generation, explains this compassion this way. A person is not only a sinner. He or she is also sinned against. My cultural background in white North American churches has oriented me almost exclusively to seeing a person as the subject of sin, but not the object of sin. Compassion is more than maternal tenderness, more than Pharaoh's daughter seeing the baby Moses crying. It is Pharaoh's daughter seeing the baby of an oppressed Hebrew crying It is tenderness translated into action on our behalf of the sinned against. I have indeed seen the misery of my people, the Lord said to Moses at the burning bush. I have heard them crying out. I am concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them. This is what compassion is. This is what it means for us to move past just seeing people as sinners and seeing people as sinned against. We have compassion and we want to enter into, be close to, proximate to, they're suffering. And such compassion also means like we care about what's going on in our cities. We care about what's happening in Bellevue. We care about what's happening in Papillion, what's happening in Plattsmouth, what's happening in Omaha. We want to see justice and righteousness take place. And wherever there is brokenness, we want to be present. 
Several years back, I I heard uh, J.D. Greer, who's a pastor in Raleigh, North Carolina, talk about a time where he was invited to speak before the city council on Martin Luther King Day. And he thought that was weird. He's like, why is a white pastor being asked to speak before the city council celebrating an African-American leader? And one of the city council men said, you know why we invited you? Because wherever there is brokenness in the city, someone from your church is there. What a testimony. And we've been praying that this would be the testimony of First City Church in our cities as well. And by God's grace, I think he's answering that prayer in some beautiful ways. I mean, praise God for the way we were able to enter into the the people who lost their homes in the flood. I mean, I praise God for you guys in the way that you entered in and loved people well. And not just for a day, for weeks. I was talking to Michelle this weekend about how that went and, and now that it's kind of over and just the amount of time and energy. And so, Michelle, thank you for unexpectedly stepping in and leading in that way. And I know many of you jumped in to help. Man, praise God for that testimony. Praise God for the way that we're developing a relationship with Bellevue together and being able to serve underprivileged kids in our community and to serve teachers who their job is to love these kids and teach these kids. Praise God for the the way that we have made inroads with Hillcrest at their assisted living centers and going and loving folks who are at the end of their life, folks who are, their their minds are literally degenerating. But you go in there and you love them and serve them and see the smiles on their face. And I have to tell the story. This wasn't in my notes, but I have to tell the story. Um, So for a while, uh, the gospel community we are part of would would go monthly into uh, Hillcrest and and we would just go sing songs with with the residents there. And this one time we went in and there was a guy who Alzheimer's was starting to really kick in. Sorry, choking up. And as we're singing, tears are just streaming down his face. The guy can't remember much, but he remembered singing these songs. They've been embedded in his soul. And so we're singing there with him and he's finding joy in that. Even as he is losing his mind, that's what it means getting up close and proximate and loving people. And praise God we're doing that. And so church, let's keep growing in compassion. Let us keep seeking justice. Let us keep seeking righteousness. Let's keep loving and serving. Let us volunteer. Let us pour our hearts out. Let us give, whether it be our neighbors whether it be people in our city, whether it be organizations. Let's give. Let's be compassionate. Let's live proximate. Let's get skin in the game. Let's be a community of disciples with presence and proximity. But it's not just our proximity and our presence. With those two also comes proclamation. We must never forget that the gospel is news. It is a message. It is an announcement that we proclaim. See, the good news is not our presence. The good news is not our hospitality. The gospel is not our deeds of justice and mercy. Like those things merely point to a greater reality. Those things are pointing to a greater kingdom. See, when Jesus came, he brought a kingdom a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom of goodness, a kingdom of love and mercy and forgiveness, a kingdom that pushes back sin and darkness. But this kingdom is not a kingdom that you and I can enter by our own merit. 
Look, it's not a kingdom that we deserve. See, in our sin, we have become rebels and enemies of God. You know, pain and suffering and sadness and rejection and despair and injustice and evil and affliction, they exist in the world around us, but they also exist in our hearts. We've rebelled against God and his goodness and his righteousness and his holiness and his beauty. We have taken his good creation and we have marred it with violence and oppression and corruption and greed, something that he made beautiful and good. We have wrecked with our sin. And even in our good deeds, we're selfish. We're motivated by self-centered ends to do good things. And all of our righteous deeds and all of our goodness is a way to say, God, hey, we got this on our own. We can take care of this on our own. We can define things on our own. We don't need you. And here's what's more. In our good deeds, in our attempts to fix things, we make it worse. I mean, consider how much technology and and how much education and and how much medicine and, and really you think about our politics and our philosophy, how we're supposed to be so advanced. And are we any better off for all of the things that we're able to accomplish today? Are we any better off? Are we any closer to solving our sin problem? Are we any less broken in our world? Are we any less Are any more close to to fixing what's wrong in our politics, fixing what's wrong in our society? Racism and sexism and violence and oppression and corruption and greed? No. They're as bad as they've ever been. And so our goodness is not enough. And so what hope if not the gospel? What hope if not Christ? This is why we must proclaim the gospel. If we don't proclaim the gospel, then we're going to drive people back into themselves. We're going to inadvertently tell them, that, hey, hope is in us. Hope is in our ability. We're going to give people the impression that sin isn't that bad and that we can figure these things out on our own. Look, we're no saviors. We're, we're no place to put our hope. History is riddled with our failure. This is why we must proclaim the gospel. Church, this is why we proclaim Jesus. This is why we proclaim a Jesus who entered into our sin and our suffering. A Jesus who sat with the sick and the diseased and the dying. A Jesus who sat with the broken and the weary. A Jesus who sat with those who were locked in relational conflict. This is why we proclaim a Jesus who challenged corrupt leaders. This is why we proclaim a Jesus who not just got close and up front, but a Jesus who loved, a Jesus who healed the sick, healed the diseased, raised the dead, challenged corrupt leaders, Jesus who dismantled corrupt religious practices, a Jesus who proclaimed a kingdom and salvation and redemption. This is why we proclaim a Jesus who took our sin and our shame and our judgment on himself and on his body. This is why we proclaim a Jesus that though he was killed, was raised in resurrection, life and power, victorious over sin and death and evil. This is why we proclaim a Jesus who saves, a Jesus who redeems, a Jesus who rescues, a Jesus who heals. And by faith in him, you can experience that love and that grace and that mercy and that healing. Church, this is why we proclaim a Jesus 
who one day is coming back, who one day will end all the suffering and all the evil and all the sadness and all the despair and all the sickness and all the affliction and all the violence and all the oppression. His righteous kingdom will end all of it and he will restore his good creation. This is why we proclaim Christ. This is our hope. This is the hope of the world church. So in our presence and our proclamation, our proximity, let us also be those who proclaim the gospel. And look, this is going to be hard and this is going to be messy. This isn't going to be easy. Because what this means is our cultural engagements isn't about grabbing for political power. It isn't trying to grab cultural power. What this means is, is that we're not trying to depend upon a particular political party in order to have a voice. This means that we're not dependent upon who's in the White House or who has control of Congress. No, this is brokenness. This is humility. This is depending upon a different power. But here's the hope for us, church. Jesus has been given all authority on heaven and earth. All of it belongs to him. He is resurrected and reigning, sitting at the right hand of God. And he is sovereignly controlling our lives, sovereignly ordering our steps. And he has poured out his spirit upon us. And so here's what he does. He strengthens our weak hands. He forgives our lack of presence and lack of proximity and lack of hospitality and lack of compassion. He forgives our self-righteousness. He forgives the ways that we flub it and blow it. And he's empowering us to walk in faithfulness, empowering us to love, empowering us to get close and get messy with people, empowering us to proclaim the gospel. And he never leaves us and he never forsakes us. He's with us to the very end. There's our hope. There's our power. There's all that we need to be faithful, to live on mission. And the beautiful thing in all of that is he is shaping us into his image that we might point others to him. And so church, this is how I want us to live and engage our culture with presence, with proximity, and with the proclamation of the gospel on our lips. Amen?